Yeah, really, really different. I mean, so many big churches. So, so many churches. Many yeah. big churches. Yeah, I remember my children. They were amazed at like, oh, you know, we'd, they'd be Church of God, Church of Jesus, Church of Christ. <laughs> down, you know, and they they couldn't work it out. You know, yeah. and the yeah. fact that there's like 900 churches in the Greater National Area. It's like. My goodness, you know, the, the idea of unity uh, is like a foreign one. Whereas in England, you know, like even amongst our, our church friends, uh, you know, if, if someone new came, you'd say, oh, let's get together for a drink or, you know, do you want to come down to the pub on, on Thursday and like have a chat or whatever? And here it was like our neighbours literally said to us, uh, oh, do you want to come to church with us on Sunday? You know? It was the first move. super sweet, but it's really yeah. like it's it was it was like oh wow we are in the Bible Belt. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, podcast listeners of all ages, welcome, bienvenue, bienvenido to. At this episode of the Jolly Thoughts Podcast, episode 50, halfway to 100, the demi-centennial. And listen, we have an absolute uh, showstopper for you this time. This is a conversation that I was able to have, blessed to have been able to have, with the one and only Stu G, Stuart Gerard. Stu uh, was the primary guitar player and uh, one of the primary writers for uh, a worship kind of slash performance band slash kind of non-conformist band that came out of the UK in the mid-90s known as Delirious. Just a hugely influential band um, uh, for myself and for, I mean, tons of people that I know. And uh, he has had a second life uh, in, in terms of uh, writing uh, kind of popular worship music in Nashville and is also a session guitar player. I mean, the guy has got a lot going on. He also, uh, a few years ago, released a book slash documentary slash kind of musical project all about the Beatitudes, the teachings of Jesus. The guy's eclectic, wide ranging. Uh, we have a, a conversation to match that, I suppose you could say. Uh, so before I go ahead and share that, I'm just going to say, hey, if you happen to be listening to this conversation, people always say at the beginning of podcasts, like, hey, make sure you like and review and whatnot. I have no uh, illusions about the fact this is a pretty homegrown, small town podcast. Um, uh, there is no team. There is me. Uh, so if you are one of the people who are listening to this, I know that you're out there because you send me anecdotal messages. It would be awesome if you could actually take a, a just a few moments to write a review, to kind of share it, to make some kind of a comment online. Uh, maybe I'm not trying to build a brand. I am just trying to I kind of make sure that we can keep this thing going. So if you could take a few minutes to do that, I would really appreciate it. Uh, halfway to 100, maybe we can make it the whole way. So without any further ado and self-promotion aside, my conversation with the one, the only, the one-time kilt-wearing Stu G. Where where in the you've been in lots of different places in the world with Michael? We were in Europe uh, a couple of months ago, um, and we did something like eight or nine countries, um, starting in uh, Romania, Poland, Hungary, uh, Norway, Denmark, Holland, um, Switzerland, and Rome. Uh, I might have missed up one or two there, uh, but that, that that was really fun. And then, um, yeah, we came back and straight into rehearsals. And uh, we've been doing a tour uh, throughout May here in America. And um, uh, we've got the last uh, couple of dates this weekend coming up. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting. I, I wouldn't have necessarily thought that uh, Michael W. Smith would have like a built-in audience in European countries. What's right. the, what, like, what is the, what are the crowds like when you go to those places? Are they? Yeah. In, you know? Well, the crowds in Europe are like way more excited than the crowds in America. <laughs> yeah, it, for Michael. So, yeah. uh, you know, I, I think everyone here, you know, that his audience is, they're, they're real super fans in America. Right. Um, but they're just a little bit more quiet 
you know when you play um whereas uh you know because we don't get overseas that much um everyone's like way more um just excited and grateful that they're, they're there you know um so it it's very exuberant actually um, yeah. we had an amazing time um i think also you know there seems to be like a kind of a, a you know in a, in in america i'm not sure what it's like in canada at the minute but you know we had the asbury thing happen here and so for folks that are like you know leaning a little more sort of to the charismatic thing um there's there's pockets of like real sort of hunger and you know almost revival going on and it seems to be that way in europe um mm. uh kind of e even more so than here actually mm. um you know stories of um of kids in france you know going into cathedrals and worshiping and you know it's kind of it's really quite amazing what's going on so and is that mostly uh are these kind of like mostly worship events that you guys are leading yes uh mo yes i mean michael always does a uh bit of a mixture of yeah. uh you know starts the night with a few uh, of the more sort of pop sort of centric things but i mean everything's worship right but um you know at, at the end of the day um you know the the, the bulk of of uh what happens you know halfway through is you know stuff from like the worship record from 2001 and 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 on you know so um right. and we had a really amazing event here in nashville with michael called surrounded and um uh at the bridgestone with like twelve thousand people a couple of years ago where the idea was to get together to pray for the city and pray for the nation and um uh you know so songs like fight my battles and Waymaker and miracles and reckless love stuff like that the the, the sort of more worship thing that he's been doing lately um uh, that that's really popular when we get out you know that's yeah. awesome yeah i mean great. that yeah i mean that couldn't be a better transition into like i mean what i, I mean there's so many things that i could talk to you about but the one yeah. that i'm as a as a you mentioned super fan earlier i like my good Smith. like one of the first yeah. albums i ever got was uh uh, change your world okay uh, so i like yeah. michael w smith i yeah. do but i i loved delirious like i'm just like okay. i was i was like <sighs> i was borderline obsessed with delirious yeah uh and so i mean uh it was like you were here in, in moncton goodness might have been might have been nearer a decade ago now than anything okay. else uh and so uh i was able to play bass uh, with you for oh that's right yeah ago. i remember that yep yeah and so that was like like highlight like it was just like oh, I, will always, I was I always look back with great fondness that's uh, great um, and so when I found out that we're gonna be, gonna be able to have this conversation I mean you know talking to you about what you're doing now obviously very high on my radar I had the opportunity to read your book uh a few months ago even though it's yeah. years later which is you know very valuable lots of questions but then also all of a sudden I noticed near the beginning of April a lot more kind of social media uh random random happenings from kind of delirious accounts yes. uh, going on. And so I was like, what is happening? So right, wh yeah. <laughs> what, what's, what seems to be happening in terms of the back catalog releases and, and kind right. of the, the inside view from, from delirious. Yeah. So, um, you know, a lot of people see that stuff happening and assume that there's some kind of reunion going on. Um, there, uh, th there is no plans for that. And so I've got <sighs> no kind of news on that, you know, but, um, Martin and I actually, we did a tour with Carrie Job and Cody Carnes. We did the Blessing West Coast tour together, and uh, which was awesome. We had such an amazing time, really fantastic time together. And um, uh, yeah, that was good. And uh, just before that, um, I'm not sure if you know the sort of family dynamic, but um, Martin's daughter Ellie Limebear, who is also an artist, worship artist, and uh, her husband is Tom, and he's helped. He helps Martin with a few things, digital marketing wise. And so, um, you know, I heard that uh, there was going to be like a new Delirious Instagram account, and really it was to kind of uh, just remind folks of of our journey. And so the the hashtag is Relive Delirious, you know, and uh, so it's kind of like an archive stuff that people perhaps haven't seen in this you know digital age and um uh and it kind of points towards a youtube channel that 
um, then has you know uh, longer form videos and stuff like that on it. So it, it's um, uh, it's it's really just to um, you know celebrate the journey that we were on and uh, and show some folks some things that perhaps they haven't seen before. Right. So you're saying that for those of us who were thinking that this was somehow going to lead to a re. <laughs> We remain heartbroken, but the, <laughs> cons- the, the consolation is that you're going to we're going to get a chance because that's a good point. I mean, your career, uh, such as uh, as it was, it kind of had, had a closed parenthesis, kind of before social media was really much of a thing, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, and so the idea that all this stuff exists on camcorders and hard drives somewhere, exactly. but never we never would have necessarily seen the light of day. That I mean, yeah. and in some ways, you're maybe the better for it. The fact that you didn't have to live under the scrutiny of social media at that time, right? But, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's a that's a whole other conversation, <laughs> isn't it? But um, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. No, it's interesting though because um, the you know the, when we were doing the cutting edge thing before Delirious, you know that I mean, there's no other word for it other than it kind of going viral across the UK and, you know, had its tentacles kind of spreading out wider. Uh, But it was purely snail mail and, you know, and uh, uh, word of mouth, which is um, really quite interesting um, when you think about everything that's going on today and how much there is going on today, how much is getting released and how, you know, the... Com- the the competition and the comparison oh yeah okay good that's great i i'm, I'm gonna remember that sentence so that we can double back to that sentence because that yeah. would be per- that'd be perfect but i don't want to move on past what, what you're talking about michael w smith and how he kind of always did both or which is yeah. not always not i don't think that's necessarily always been true but maybe at least for a very long time he's always kind of yeah. done both he's that kind of performance yeah. and worship stuff and started me thinking about delirious and yeah I, I thought to myself this morning i mean um, I mean, the climate, just the the church climate is just so dramatically different than it was 20 years ago. Uh, yes. That this almost won't even necessarily, it would almost be hard to really understand Yes. how, how those things could have been perceived if they were, if your experience had been dropped into today's experience, what would it be? Right, yeah. But how did you guys even think about what you were doing? Because- so I remember the first time I saw you guys, it must've been 97 or at least very close to that. It would have been at um, Creation Fest in Pennsylvania. Okay, yeah. Um, you were on King of Fools tour. Yes. And what I saw and what I listened to when I got that album, I didn't. I never had the cutting edge, but I, I got it afterwards. Yeah. When I got King of Fools, no part of me at that point in my life, so like, you know, we're talking about 25 years ago, would have thought this is the kind of music that I could lead on a Sunday morning. Like it right. would have not in no way would that have been anything that would have crossed my mind. Now we went back to cutting edge stuff. We could see that that started, that sort of music started to get done in special events and like youth events and things like that in North America. Yeah. But you were doing your album releases that kind of came out after that. were always kind of, kind of both, I guess. Is that how would you like, so did you think of yourselves as releasing quote unquote worship music? Is that what you thought you were doing? Uh, uh, Definitely. So um, excuse me definitely uh with cutting edge with king of fools definitely we were that you know we were um you know there was no one telling us that we couldn't do anything like we were our own label and um uh we were very much inspired in the early days by the vineyard movement and um, in particular um worship leader musician called kevin prosh and um I'd toured with him. Martin had done sound for him on a tour. And, um, uh, you know, he was kind of like really encouraging all the musicians and worship leaders in the UK. Um, I mean, one of his phrases is kind of funny, but, you know, it was, you know, God loves your tone. Like, so he was kind of just wanting us to play out, wanting us to experiment, um, wanting us to use the music that we listen to on a daily basis and, you know, create our worship from that. And, um, and so that's what we did. And, you know, the, the idea of us having our own label, like that wasn't a, a forethought. It, we, it just happened because we made 250 tapes of a, you know, five song EP 
and we sold it at the back of the room and then that paid for the next one and then we started stuffing them in envelopes and you know uh, um, and mailing them out and uh so that's how it began and you know at any stage along the way um there was no one telling us what we should or shouldn't or could or couldn't do you know and so um if we you know a song like all the way off off king of fools you know that kind of um oasis inspired in some way you know with the sort of like open chords and the sevenths and the ninths and what have you um uh and uh like we would do that at our worship events and people would love it you know um as uh, alongside um did you feel the mountains tremble and stuff like that you know and then history maker obviously um at, at the same time which was off king of fools and so um yeah it was all one thing for us and i think that uh that i mean in theory that's how the question mark came about on the on the name because um people were saying are you a rock band or are you a worship band you know so um and of course the answer was yes and so <laughs> we put the question mark on just to oh. i don't know just to uh keep the keep the questions coming but um i think you know, as we went on um you know we decided uh to we we had a song called white ribbon day that uh martin had written um after that, that was inspired by the peace movement in northern ireland and um we did that at a, a one night in a i think we were in bedford sort of in the in the east of england and um we we performed that because we before we recorded anything we always used to try it out you know um live and so we did that live one day and this uh gentleman this irish gentleman came up to us and said you have to release that as a single and he gave us like a thousand pounds or something to um you know to to get the ball rolling on it you know and so uh so we did we released it with a single that's how we got to know um the guy that was going to become our manager tony batota he was working for a, a record label called total records in london he, he was running it and um had massive hits like right said fred i'm too sexy and you know <laughs> it's kind same of same hairstyle same hairstyle yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. right and um and so uh we got to know him and he he helped us put our single out and you know we we didn't make the top 40 we were like 41 that week and so uh but it made us think you know if we're encouraging kids that are coming to our events to open up the doors and let the music play like in other words like don't uh don't just keep this what we're discovering here and our exuberant sort of worship don't just keep that to the four walls of the church but take it to your colleges take it to your workplace take it to your schools whatever wherever they were and uh we thought well we've just done it with one single let's um let's uh not be hypocrites and kind of you know take it to the high street and and uh try and get it on the radio and stuff like that so when that happened we had a, a, a few singles off king of fools and um and that continued with mesomorphous um which was a little bit more of a rock pop album you know uh but by design but you know we never really ever had that sort of um dividing line between worship and um and you know rock or pop um the or sacred or secular you know um uh i can't remember who said this it might have been um uh abraham joshua heschel uh he might have said uh that there's not a secular molecule in the universe you know um so uh that that was our kind of thinking you know naively so because everyone wants to box things up you know sure. and uh for ease of marketing and all that but um that was our idea and then when we made glow um yeah, we we specifically kind of aimed that at, at more kind of singable worship songs you know <laughs> although people might not uh realize that but we did yeah because there was well, a lot could, of fuzz there was I a lot of fuzz pedals on there I can tell. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. So you kind of had the mesomorphosis, which was like, you know, hey, we're deep in our Radiohead phase. Yeah. And then you kind of kick over to Glow, which had, they were, I mean, you intentionally had like gang vocals in the background. Like, yeah, it, it sounded like people were singing, singing yes. songs. Yeah, that's right. I guess what makes me think about it, or that maybe the, uh, a way of reframing the question is, 
and how maybe back then is simply just different than today. What you didn't do, as far as I know, was release chord charts and multi-tracks like for the Glow album. So like no. the idea of resourcing and preparing other people to lead these songs in their own churches from get-go, like was that yeah. was that on your radar at all? Like the idea that you weren't merely releasing worship music but that you were releasing worship songs for people to contextualize their own places. Yeah. I I don't know that we thought about it too much. Um, We were, we were really thrilled that people were singing them. You know, we, we loved that. I think we did do a music book, but it wasn't like creating, you know, single resources for each song and like trying to uh, do that. I don't know who else was, who was all doing that at the time like maybe integrity music was and and the vineyard maybe but um yeah it was like real early days of like what's become the worship movement now um so uh you know obviously we uh we loved that people were singing the songs we loved that they loved to do that and uh we would have you know wanted people to sing them on Sundays, but, um, I guess we didn't like make that easier. We, the, you know, there, there wasn't like necessarily a, a kind of a Hit. format of doing that, you know, <laughs> I just push play kit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and then, so beyond that, I mean, obviously then you kind of, you, you kept doing albums that kind of kicked back and forth between the sort of the singable and the yes. contemplative. Yeah. Yeah. So how does that, um, so, you know, yeah. we, we really tried to, make uh, there was a song called uh, there was an album called audio lesson over in the uk it was called touch over here um and um that was a little bit more out there a little bit sort of there was a couple of def- definitely avant-garde rock moments on that um and then we kind of did what was kind of a tr- little trilogy of records after that with um world service which was definitely like more of a return to songs like majesty and rain down and um grace like a river you know there was some definite okay we we really want to make this for the church to sing mm-hmm. and then there was like so i call that the grace album if you like and then there was like a mission type album uh it's called the mission bell you know the idea of like uh, like we we were on the road i think like somewhere in southern california and came across this little you know spanish mission church from the 1500s or something and it was just um just really beautiful to be there and um you know the idea of that of of that bell ringing out in that tower and people coming to worship like that that was the second the the idea of that that kind of second album of, of that little trilogy and then um the third one was kingdom of comfort which um the title actually comes from which ended up being our last studio album. And, um, yeah, the title comes from the idea of Solomon and how he was the wisest, you know, man that ever lived, if you like. But then, um, he also fell into forgetting to tell the story of being set free from slavery and, um, uh, and ended up being the one that had the slaves and built the armies. And, you know, uh, so the question was, well, what are we building? Are we building a kingdom of comfort or the kingdom of heaven? That was the sort of thing. We And we were all in a, in a space of, you know, we'd all been to India. We'd all seen terrible extreme poverty and, you know, been involved with some things. And uh, we were all on a journey of like, you know, what do we do with this? You know, and then, the, of course, the, quest, the, the, the sort of microscope comes in on yourselves, you know, and... Uh, and and how am I living? What am I creating? You know, am I, am I just trying to make a life of comfort for myself or, or, or live out this kingdom of heaven? Mm. Yeah. And so was it around that time that the, the idea for your kind of future work regarding the kind of, the, I use the word trilogy again, of the work that you did that became a bit of a book and an album and a, and a documentary or like yeah. the seeds of it kind of at that time? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. The seeds came uh, uh, from that time, you know, I'd, I'd, talked with the guys about you know um the the idea of doing a beatitudes project but i mean at the time it would have just been a music album um i I fully intended it to be a delirious record or you know i and and i would say i'd put it out like this you know um 
you know, we've experienced poverty. Um, you know, we've seen grief. We've seen people hungry and thirsty for justice and righteousness. We've, um, you know, it's always a good time to talk about peacemaking, to talk about mercy. And there are people being persecuted around the world, like for their faith. You know, it'd be great concept record. And there's only eight themes. So, uh, like, that could even make a, a vinyl LP, you know, four on each side. Right. <laughs> you know, 20 minutes aside or something, you know. And, yeah. uh, um, and everyone thought it was a great idea and we, we never got around to it. And then the idea never really left me, but when delirious finished, cause it, it wasn't long after that, that we, we played our last show in 2009. And, um, um, but you know, like I've said in the book that it, it kind of threw me into an upside down space of like, ah, uh, you know, I'm in my mid forties and, um, and this huge part of like this, this whole career, that I've been doing for like 20 years or, you know, built up for 20 years is just gone and um, is my best work behind me. And, you know, see, so I was like, you know, free falling in some way, but at the same time, you know, trying to keep your family together and, and uh, you know, what, what is the right next step? You know, just looking for that one thing that is, uh, this is the next step that I need to do. And so that was definitely an upside down moment. And in that, you know, whether I was making good decisions or bad decisions, you know, the, the idea of the blessing in the Beatitudes being presence, that's when that came to life for me. Like the, uh, because, um, you know, the, um, in that sort of free fall moment, you know, the, the, I felt like God was never far away. And, um, uh, and so that's when the idea of the blessing in the Beatitudes being the presence of God with us, um, not a quick fix out of your muddles and, and poverty or, um uh grief or whatever like but actually actually that god is with you in it in those valley moments you know or in those upside down moments that's when that came to be and then uh you know i'd have a couple of conversations and with folks over here and it kind of quickly became bigger than just a uh a music idea and so um uh, i i i remember being in uh, jimmy abeg's garden jimmy abeg is a um he was in the ragamuffin band. He was part of uh, the uh, Charlie Peacock trio and uh, worked with Charlie for years. And, uh, but also was a photographer, videographer, uh, designer, um, artist, visual artist, unbelievable person. And, um, and a real sage. And I was in his back garden. We had a little kind of gathering of friends with a, we had a, my friend who's a Jewish rabbi. We had Kevin Max was there and a guy called Corey Basil, who's another artist. And uh, we, we were all kind of sitting around a fire. Steve Hindelong, I think was there from the choir. We were all sitting around a fire pit and having a conversation. And, you know, it was one of those moments where conversations went a little bit wider after that happened. And I just had a phone call out of the blue from book publisher um who worked for nav press and um a guy called don and uh he he said oh this is a really interesting conversation have you ever thought about writing a book and i was like no he said well would you think about it you know i'd love to help you do it and so that was how that started and so out of the baby idea of a beatitudes music project came these wider conversations and then i just started to meet folks who somehow embodied something of what i was thinking about um and you know over the next couple of years you know i met a woman who'd been on death row for 27 years i met women who were survivors of prostitution addiction trafficking i met um you know i'd gone to india again i'd uh met a multimillionaire. um and asked him what poverty of spirit looked like to him. And, you know, who's kind of um, uh, just meeting all these different people. And uh, it sort of like came together as a storytelling idea, you know. And then um, I remember uh, Karen and I, we visited Ethiopia with an organization called Food for the Hungry. And while we were there, a friend of mine that I hadn't seen for I don't know, at least 10 years was also on that, on that trip. And, you know, he runs a film company and uh, I was telling him about it in the back of a van going across Ethiopia. And he was like, Oh, we should make a film, you know? And 
and that's how that started you know i then had to go away and you know try and raise some money and stuff like that but um uh you know the uh that that's how that all began so it's like a a glorious kind of um whirlwind and things bumping into each other now when people write books uh normally i think it's like birthing a child in some respects so often the next day is uh when it's released into the wild is like i'll never do that again uh it's usually kind of like one thing but then after that uh normally they'll start to think well what about the next book so i mean have you put any kind of thought or feelers into like another project um i've not put anything into a uh a book yet um i have thought about you know because it's been a few years since that whole thing came out and then i was privileged enough to be able to take the film and the uh, and you know go and talk about it and you know present the book the ideas and stuff like that for the project in in churches um and that was amazing i really loved doing that and then the pandemic happened so 2020 and it kind of uh put a stop to all of that and uh i met someone who said you should like consolidate all of this content and all of these things into an online e-course you know make the the film the chapters you know make the book available and your study materials like in a uh, a weekly weekly series so that's what we did so we did that and then we've done a few webinars since then um uh, and i haven't done any this year yet um, so i've been thinking about how do i um uh re- sort of get this in front of people again you know there's still a lot of life in it and i'm really still very passionate about uh the work and and the the idea and the concept and stuff like that and so i'm just you know toying around the idea at the moment of um uh of what to do next um i'd already started to write a couple more songs i don't want it to be a whole kind of music thing but you know i'd love to have a couple more songs and i've been working on some things with some friends you know just real uh relaxed in a relaxed way uh without any deadlines and stuff like that um and uh you know i'd kind of like to i'd like to be getting out and speaking about it again that's what i'd really love to do so i'm trying to think how do we do that probably people need to see me talking on video or something you know so i'm just thinking about what how how to go about that do we create an event you know that that we film and you know give it a little bit a, a little injection of uh, presence again. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, so going back to the end of Delirious, which is yes. around 2009 or so. Yeah. Kind of before this really exciting chapter of your life happens, you mentioned yeah. that you're in a, a bit of an existential crisis. I mean, that had happened around your mid forties, man, what a cocktail. Cause that is usually yeah. a, that's already a time for existential crises anyway. So go ahead and yeah. throw, a, throw a major life change like that in there. It's, yeah. it's hard times. Yeah. Um, you relocated to the U S around yes. that time is that right yes yeah yeah we in 2010 yeah yeah and yeah, then so still in the middle of it all so um you know uh delirious finished it was like what do we do next i i'd spent the last sort of year of being in delirious whenever we were in america i'd stay out for a week and come and visit different places predominantly nashville or the west coast and um you know just to see do a little bit of writing, do a little bit of catching up with people, networking, that sort of thing, and just see if there was like life, um, you know, potential for, uh, for for some work and stuff like that. And there was, and, and I, I ended up meeting um, Jason Ingram, um, and we dreamed up um, One Sonic Society together, a little music project that we did, a worship project that we did with him and Paul Mabry, and. Um, uh, yeah, that was the beginning of that. But that that led to a uh, publishing deal. And then that led to me getting a, more and more work from here, um, from Nashville. And so we actually came out one, uh, one Easter and um, like to kind of look for a little apartment or something, because I was always just crashing on couches or in people's spare rooms. And, and folks were incredibly kind about that especially Jimmy Abeg and Jason Ingram. So uh, um, we, uh, my wife and, and my girls came out one Easter and uh, we were 
looking, you know, do we make a little base here, get a little apartment or something in Nashville, um, just so that I, um, you know, if, if I come for a month or if we come for a month and then go back to England, let's do that. And then uh, while we were here, the volcano erupted in Iceland and it meant that we had to, there was no transatlantic flights for like another seven days or 10 days or something. And so we ended up having to stay here a bit longer. And um, in that time, we ended up buying a house and then we moved later that year. That is an impulse buy right there. Well, yeah. I don't know. No, a volcano went off, so may as well buy a uh-huh. house. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Uh, that's that's fascinating. So um, I was going to, one of the questions that I was tasked with asking you, partially yeah. because as I mentioned in advance, that uh, uh, I was going to be trying to pick your brain a little bit about kind of like the worship leader research uh, content. That yes. had, and you already kind of teed it up a little bit at the beginning of this conversation. Okay. But one of the questions was like, how did you end up getting moving from being what I'm presuming is one of the primary writers with, with delirious, you were like the yeah. one who helped for it, uh, to being then a writer who ends up having songs that are recorded by, you know, movements like Jesus culture and, and vertical yeah. worship and some of these other. So yeah. was, was that through the publishing deal that you ended up kind of getting inked with? Uh, yeah, it was, with um, it was both, uh, it was both the publishing deal and relationships, right. You know, like both, together um and you know that was a complete shock like getting a publishing deal and then becoming a songwriter for a living was completely different to writing in delirious and i i don't feel like i made that transition very well um but it was just completely out of my uh experience you know um the way we would write in delirious was that we'd martin and i would gather our ideas throughout the year we'd you know either sketch them down on a pad or you know in a little recorder or mini disc or something uh you couldn't do voice memos at the time there was yeah. no such thing you know so um uh that's what we do we then at the end of the year sort of november december we'd sort of work a little bit on them then show them to each other and then you know get in like january and february we'd kind of all get together and show us our show our ideas and the songs that we'd written martin and i had written and you know, we'd end up recording them. And uh, so it was kind of a yearly thing rather than an everyday thing, right. you know. And go then, to the office, write a song. Go to the office, write a song, and then write another one in the afternoon. Like, uh, and then, so I remember the first time I ever did like a whole five-day week of of two sessions a day, I was out of ideas by Wednesday morning, you know. <laughs> and um uh, just put so much pressure on myself because there was all these other people um, that were really good at it, like especially someone like Jason. But what you don't hear about Jason is the fact that he had like three years of writing songs, you know, hundred songs a year and never got a cut or something. And then, sure. you know, and then um, Joy Williams comes along, makes a record and he, you know, ends up like writing seven with her. And that was, that was his key start. But, you know, you, you don't um know about all those years of like just writing and M- michael's got a story like that too he, his was the same he he reckons he uh he says it when he first got his deal um he wrote 103 songs in a year and he, and he said they were all really bad there was only one that made it and it was that uh song that sandy patty did or something that made made famous so um like a hymn so uh like everyone's got that thing and i know like the ten thousand hours thing is not necessarily everyone's journey but it's it it's a pretty good uh you know you've got to put those years in in your bedroom you know playing guitar before you can like go and play in front of someone you know Uh, so um yeah it, it was that was that was really hard work and so I was also a guitar player, you know, so I'd tour with Michael W. I did my first tour with Michael in uh, 2010 um, and other people, you know, Paul Balash, Johnny Swim, I toured with, um, you know, all kinds of different folks that I'd like play on their records and what have you. Um, And I really enjoy that. I love this scene here in Nashville still, you know, that, um, uh, you can bump into someone in Starbucks and, you know, next day be in the studio with them. That's quite, that that's quite fun. Um, But it, it, 
you know, it's also a thing that if you are on the road, um, uh, that you might get a call and you can't make it and then you drop off people's radar. So, you know, if you're on the road for three months, uh, or predominantly, you know, pretty much we're back every weekend, but, um, you know, the, 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 the idea that, you know, you're, you're away for like Wednesday through Sunday every week, you know, and, uh, so you can't make gigs, you drop off someone's radar. And then when you have got three months at home, like no one's calling you. No. We've all been there. Yeah. 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 That's, that is a, that is a tension to manage for sure. Um, yeah. being, the, being the right kind of busy. Yeah. Um, so, so you're, you're woodshedding, you're writing songs, you're finding it tough, yeah. but obviously it, it doesn't look like it took very long for you to, I mean, you, you maybe woodshed it for 10,000 hours on the guitar, but uh, in terms of like you're writing, because it looks like songs ended up getting recorded pretty quick after you started writing them in, in Nashville. Yeah. Right? So, you know, obviously writing with Jason was a real amazing bonus for me. You know, like we ended up with something that Hillsong did. We had a song uh, that Meredith Andrews did with um, Elevation, uh, not Elevation, Vertical Church and stuff like that. And I wrote with the guys from Elevation and had a song cut, you know. Um, but it's not in the it's not in the tens and tens of songs. It's, you know, one here and one there. And it's it's brilliant. I'm, like, absolutely grateful for it. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, it's... Uh, I can't remember what the question was now. Sorry. <laughs> no, it was just more of an observation that it's, you yeah. know, you, you cut in pretty fast. Yeah. You got still... in pretty quick, but I, yeah. I think that, um, I like Paul Mabry, we, we always used to say to each other, cause he was like from Australia and, yeah. you know, hadn't been here that long, I guess, you know, when, when I first got to know him, funnily enough, the band that he had in Perth, Australia, uh, supported delirious when we were in, uh, Perth. Uh, was it even his? Wasn't even his band? Do you remember? Oh, do you know what? You can't remember. Okay, uh, we, we, yeah. he doesn't need to know. Uh, it's funny yeah. that so I, I lived in I lived in Nashville at uh, for two years in two thousand and yeah, it might have been around two thousand and eight or nine. I can't remember. It might have been okay. Like, no, actually, it must have been when you were there because okay. I I led I played bass at the church that Jason Ingram was on. He was like one of their retainer worship leaders. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so uh, I I remember pitching to him, hey. I mean, Stu's from England. Uh, you've got Paul from uh, Australia. I mean, I'm Canadian. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm the most logical choice to be your bass player in one Sonic Society. Yeah. But he didn't. Ah, uh, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, the Commonwealth, you know. Yeah, that's right. A anyway, I remembered what I was going to say. Um, with Paul, you know, he always used to say it takes five years, five years to move to Nashville and to kind of, you know, feel at home in the in the scene and and, you know, get working and stuff like that. And I, I think that's true. I think that's true. I think the only thing with moving from outside to coming into Nashville is the church thing. And, you know, Karen and I are, and, and, you know, the same for other friends that have moved in as well. It, it, trying to find your community. I don't, I don't, I don't mean which church you go to. I just mean your if for want of a better phrase, you know, your small group that you kind of are living life with. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I mean, we've got gr amazing friends now, but I would still, it, it is very different because life in Nashville is very transient. You know, it's very kind of um, transactional <laughs> at times, you know, um, you're in someone's world when you can do something for them or vice versa you know, and, um, and then everyone's just so busy as well. Um, you know, so it's hard to, it's hard to make a regular thing for community, uh, sure. here. Do you find the church world was dramatically different than the church world that you're used to in the UK as well? Oh, dramatically different. Yeah. <laughs> really, really different. I mean, so many big churches, so, so many churches, many yeah. big churches. Yeah. I remember my children being kind of, uh, like not, not even being funny <laughs> but they were amazed at like oh you know we'd there'd be church of god church of jesus church of christ <laughs> down the, you know and they they couldn't work it out you know yeah. and the yeah. fact that there's like 900 
or more churches in the greater Nashville area. It's like, my goodness, you know, like the idea of unity uh, is like a foreign one. <laughs> and uh, well, yeah. well and, but also that all of them are apparently it must be in church on Sunday morning, right? Like every single person right. who lives there must be in church on Sunday, or else these yes. churches would shutter their shutter their doors, yeah. right? Like it's yeah, it's I know. very different. And like, whereas in England, you know, like even amongst our, our church friends, uh, you know, if if someone new came you'd say, oh, let's get together for a drink or, you know, do you want to come down the pub on on Thursday and like have a chat or whatever? And here it was like our neighbours literally said to us, uh, oh, do you want to come to church with us on Sunday? You know, and it was, <laughs> the first it was super sweet, but it's really yeah. like, it's it was, it was like, oh, wow, we are in the Bible Belt, you know. <laughs> Should we date first before you even yeah. ask me to marry you? Like that's, bit, <laughs> that's a bit wild. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, but that, so it, it was a real shock. And then also, I think something that marked the movement that we kind of rode the wave of in terms of Delirious and, you know, like Matt Redman, Tim Hughes, uh, like stuff that was happening across the UK um, in the late 90s and early 2000s was was this unity thing you know it was like churches coming together to to create a city-wide movement really and then they would invite us to come or matt to go and lead worship or whatever it was or to do some sort of worship concert or something and you know the unity thing in the uk was unbelievable and um it i mean you know it was uh quite extraordinary and so uh that's a little bit different here you, know. you, haven't, you haven't experienced the same thing there yet not yet i mean you know amongst it, it there's pockets of it, but. it yeah there's pockets and there's conversations you have all the time it's amazing you know but um in the in the broader sense of stuff sure. you know so i mean i want to be respectful of your times early like right near the beginning you mentioned how uh i think you used the word volume or just the sheer number of kind of song selections that kind of worship leaders and that, and that yeah. churches have to deal with nowadays uh so around 2010, you become an active writer in the area. Paul tells you it's going to take you about five years before you feel at home. So by yeah. about 2015, you're at home, right? Roughly, we'll right. call it that. You're yeah. still, I'm assuming that you're, even though you're traveling a lot now, you're still an active writer in the, in the scene. You're still. Yeah, I, I am. I don't write anywhere near enough to be kind of like any good, <laughs> if, if, if you know what I mean. Sure. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of um, a little bit random for me at the minute with being on the road with Michael um, and then being home. So I, I do try and write every month and, uh, you know, will, um, you know, remind people that I'm around when I'm around and, and, and stuff like that. So, uh, and I, I get invited into different camps, different writing camps every now and then, uh, which I'm really grateful for. And uh, yeah. So yeah, so I'm, I'm for somebody, somebody with your perspective. So, I mean, you, you were, uh, you're not, you're not old, uh, but you have been around, right. you've seen some things, right? So you were yeah. kind of around at the dawn of this, this kind of current era that we're in. And yeah. you're still kind of a, I'm going to go ahead and say that you're probably like an outside insider or an inside yeah. outsider, however you uh -huh. want to frame that. You kind of have the the bi-locationality of that, right. which yeah. I, I understand in some respects. Yeah. Um, so what are you seeing? What sort of observations are you seeing? And this is not a leading question at all. I promise. I'm just yeah. curious to get your actual reflections on what your kind of sense is of the current kind of North American scope of the worship scene at this point in time. Um, so, I mean, I've, I've read some of your articles on the worship resources site, you know, so, uh the so the thing that comes to mind is that you know the songs that are predominantly sung not just mostly across america but also other parts of the world too are kind kind of come from like five movements or uh you can expand that by a, a couple of people people like chris tomlin and phil wickham and stuff like that so i mean that's what i notice uh, now i don't think that's an a terribly negative thing i think that these people like i mean brooke lidgetwood what an incredible gift she is to the church you know and the songs that she's written and and the same for all, all of these people you know um 
they they're writing really good songs for the church and so that's what gets picked up i think what gets a little bit lost sometimes is that um uh that each place um you know we we don't always know the song that that church needs to sing you know so i think there i think that this movement should be encouraging local churches to write their songs as well and I, you know, there's a lot of that you know with um people like worship tutorials and you know other other movements and stuff like that you know encouraging folks to uh, and i know that's a real heart of integrity music um the label what have you to find local churches to use their expression of worship and write the songs that they need to sing because we have no idea you know what they're going through so like for instance um uh what happened at covenant prayers in nashville with the the shooting what have you you know or what happened when there's a flood or you know uh i mean that's kind of they're kind of dramatic things but you know what how, how do we how do does the worship community help them you know have an expression for what they're going through in in a in a season you know and, and so i think um uh there there should be a an emphasis on encouraging local churches to be writing their own liturgies and their own uh expressions of of worship and that's just an observation you know i've taught i like i said i toured with martin and carrie and cody and um i think what cody Carnes is doing um obviously carrie and martin too but you know I, I was struck by the brilliance of cody and his uh and his songwriting um and so i'm 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 encouraged by it all honestly it's good you know um i don't really have a uh i I don't have anything negative to say about what's happening with everyone i think you know the the smaller number of writers that are influencing the world um you know is a uh is is a phenomenon of our time i think yeah i think that probably makes sense i part of what what ends up getting lost sometimes is uh is this impression that this research is supposed to be evaluative, uh, like morally evaluative. So like that we're mm. somehow saying that it's good or bad, which is right. kind of how it gets framed. Unfortunately, you know, that's right. how, that's how clicks happen is people. Yeah. I get that. By yeah. angering people. Uh, but no, I, I mean, I tell people that I lead all these songs at my own local church on a Sunday morning. Yeah. So like, I'm not, yeah. uh, and I'm only you know one member of the team, but, but by, by no means are we trying to say that it's a bad thing. Uh, no, I get categ- that. Categorically. I think it's, it's worth asking the kind of questions about it. One thing that you said that was interesting to me was that you actually observed this to be true. So like, here we are, like we're looking at spreadsheets and, and, and numbers on a, on a screen. We're not traveling to Norway and to Nebraska. Yeah. So like, that's not, that's not how we do it. So is it actually your observation impression that this, that there is this kind of a global songbook that seems to be happening right now? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like um, I, I'm good friends with David and Leslie, uh, you know, that used to be all sons and daughters and Jason who wrote great. Are you Lord? You know, that is, that song is sung everywhere in the world, Really, yeah. you know, and uh, we, we would be singing songs that everyone would know, you know, like reckless love or, you know, whatever with on on tour with Michael in Italy or whatever, and you know, be encouraging them to sing in Italian or Spanish, and that that you know they've all been translated, and, right. you know, into local languages, and um, uh, yeah, so it is a it, it is a global songbook. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, it's just a phenomenon that wouldn't have been. I mean, hymns existed in the past they get translated yes. and they get they get disseminated but just the speed at which it's able to happen now is kind of yes unpre- unprecedented right so yes i think the the uh, only time where i sometimes feel oh that's a bit weird is if when you're in india or in africa or somewhere like that and like i'm i'm there honestly wanting to hear local expressions that you know with drums and dancing and sure. you know the 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 cultural music so um uh, and, and sometimes it sounds more Western 
than mm. uh, anything else. You know, so I, you know, I mean, that's just a personal thing. You no, know. that's that's good to know. It's it's you know, it is always it's a balance that needs to be walked out in terms of yeah. what you said already, local contextualization. Yes, but also kind of local creation, right? Like what stuff yes. is coming from there that. Fascinating. Well, th- thank you for your thoughts on that. It's really helpful. Yeah. No Only one, I want to ask one last question before we go, which yeah. is that you, you mentioned that you've been doing some work with kind of amp modeling and, and things yeah. like that. So, because uh, I mean, you were an electrician before you were a guitar player, right? Yes, that right? that's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. So it's deep in your yeah. bones. Uh, so yeah. what's what's the haps there? What's going on? Yeah. So uh, a few years ago, um, someone reached out to me, a guy called Jonathan Sullivan, um, or as m- many of the people know him, he's called HW, but um, he runs a company <laughs> called Tone Junkie. Okay, yes. And uh, um, he said, Stu, would you like to, you know, create a pack? We can chat about how that works and uh, for a pack for the Kemper. Right. So Kemper is a piece of guitar gear that kind of replaces an amp and it models your amp or it profiles your amp. So it's kind of like a sampler in some way. And and then, you know, you plug a guitar in and can, you know, manipulate it like you would an amp with pedals and stuff like that. But um, uh, so we did that and then you know in the years since you know there's been other formats come out helix and um all kinds of things quad cortex and you know all kinds of uh stuff like that and uh so it keeps us busy with like creating the uh presets and profiles that help especially churches um i mean that's not why we've done it but it does help churches you know whereas you know 10 years ago everyone had an amp room or were having isolation boxes or whatever um you know people can have something on stage now that just goes direct into the pa and sounds amazing so um uh that's that's what we do um so you're working on the software on the software side of it or on the hardware side of it software software okay yeah 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 so we work on the software side creating presets and patches and profiles and um i've just um created a pack with a company called rev amps and two notes um uh for for their products that they make which is different to what i do with tone junkie so um yeah excited to see how that goes just trying to you know i mean i you say i'm not old but i'm definitely not I'm not 20 years old and, uh, and, you know, running around a computer creating things. It's like, it's kind of the technology is, uh, pretty amazing and I try and keep up, but it's, uh, you know, I'm lagging behind a little bit, but I, I do work with people who know what they're talking about and help me create these things. Yeah. You're doing great. So here's the question, just like one last one to lob across. Do you observe that people are playing as much guitar in Sunday morning worship context as they did 10 years ago? more guitar or less guitar uh yeah um as much if not more honestly (laughs) as my experience um but i think it goes everything goes in seasons and it tends to lag a little bit behind what's going on in the pop world right you know um the influences that come there um you know so uh yeah it just kind of like follows on the trends really the music music trends um but i there's a ton of guitar players in church music at the moment okay cool good to know that's good to know it's it's not on its way out yet so that's good yeah (laughs) yeah yeah i mean you know i I don't think it's necessary i think um uh i mean the two guitar thing is kind of an extravagance i think but um you know i was the only guitarist in in delirious apart from martin who, who used to play as well uh but he was he was really a front man you know so um uh yeah but um like i i got to play with casey moore from leland um with cody and carrie and martin and that was i mean it was a treat to be able to do that but it's a lot of guitar isn't it, <laughs> it that's be. a lot of reverb and delays right there <laughs> yeah you got to be careful um, yeah. otherwise you're gonna get a bit of a sea of sea of mush if you're not careful. yeah <laughs> Awesome. Hey, thank you so much, Stu. Really appreciate your yeah. time. Again, this has been a huge, huge honor. Thanks, Mark. I'm sorry it's taking so long. <laughs>